I know it's hard to believe, but believe it or not, Pastor Ryan used to be an athlete. In fact, I used to be an elite athlete. Mm -hmm. May God help your unbelief. I was a decent soccer player in my day. For those of you that know and love the beautiful game, I could see the, the field and I could put the ball where it needed to go. I spent my youth playing club ball and with our Olympic developmental team. From time to time, scouts would come and watch me play. So what happened? <laughs> well, when I turned 18, I got a job working for Coors. Yes, that's right, Coors. I worked in the warehouse, stacking pallets with beer. They trained me to ride around on the back of a big, giant forklift, into the cooler and out to the loading dock and back in again, which was kind of nice because even though it was really, really hot on the loading dock, you would ride back into the cooler and it was ice cold. The lift that we, we worked on uh, weighed 10,000 pounds. And it had solid, hard rubber wheels with no air in the tires. It was Memorial Day weekend, and I remember that because I was getting paid time and a half. And without warning, my partner threw the forklift in reverse. And before I knew it, I had been knocked on the ground. And the lift, the back end of the lift, was sitting on my foot, and it was rolling up my ankle. And the pressure burned like lava, and it blew every single stitch out of my shoe just like that. I screamed for mercy, and finally, the guy heard me. He turned around and saw what he had done. At the hospital, the surgeon cut into my foot to see how bad it was, and it didn't bleed, and he cut all the way to the bone. I had gangrene like a Civil War soldier. He took my dad out into the hall, and he told him that I'd lose my foot and that I'd never walk again. And like the psalmist, I cried out day and night, for my soul was full of troubles. At the age of 18, I felt my life and all that was before me slipping down to Sheol. And I became a man with no strength, one forgotten by God and covered over by his wrath. My companions shunned me. My girlfriend, the one I thought was the one, I'm sure you know what happened. She left me immediately. I had successive surgeries, and my foot became a horror to behold. I became a shut-in, and my eyes grew dim, and I could not escape my bed. I cried out day after day until I lost hope, which didn't take long. It didn't take long until I became certain that the Lord's wonders would never be known in the dark. Though it was a lifetime ago, I still remember it like it was yesterday. I still feel it like it was yesterday. It felt like God had hidden his face from me. What do we do when the sun covers us over 
and we find our lives eclipsed in darkness, what do we do? Well, for starters, we turn to Psalm 88. Psalm 88 begins and ends in darkness. Think back to Dark Saturday, and you may remember. This is the psalm we read that day between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. It's the darkest psalm we have, simply put. It's like a tunnel, dark and deep. And when you read it for the first time, probably just like you heard Sonny reading it, uh, you want to hurry through to the very end, hoping that you will find some hope and some light. But then you get to the last verse, and you see there's no hope, there's no light in it at all. And by the end, your only companion is darkness. It begins with a cry, a call for help, a never-ending distress call looped end to end. Because the psalmist's soul is troubled, and he feels his body inching towards Sheol. He's counted among the lost. We would say he's a dead man walking, and everybody knows it. It's only a matter of time before he's going to go to the grave, and so he starts to think crazy thoughts. He starts to think, maybe death isn't all that bad. Maybe death frees us to escape the suffering of this world. Ah, but the psalmist knows the truth all too well. He's been catechized far too much. He knows there's no freedom. There's no life apart from the Lord, here or hereafter. For the psalmist, dying means being forgotten by God, and living means being cut off from His gracious hand. Grace or no, the psalmist can't help but be honest. And you hear his honesty, do you not? He can't help but be honest about his life. He knows God's listening. And he can't help but recognize. It's God who's put me in this pit, in regions dark and deep. It's God's wrath that lies heavy on me. It's God who's bearing me under waves of suffering. It's God who caused my companions to shun me. I'm shut in, and I can't escape. And as he pours out his prayers before the Lord, his eyes grow dim. Needless to say, we rarely turn to Psalm 88. It's not our favorite. We don't want to turn here for two reasons. First, those of us who don't know very much about suffering would rather keep it that way. And second, those of us that are suffering, we'd rather find our hope elsewhere. And yet, and yet, God has given us such a psalm. He's given this to us. Why? Well, in a world full of fake sunshine and rainbows, Psalm 88 gives us space to recognize that for many, life is anything but. To quote R.E.M. for the second Sunday in a row, everyone hurts sometimes. Everyone suffers sooner or later. And in everyone's heart of hearts, we know it, don't we? Don't we know? Suffering, what does it feel like? It feels like punishment, doesn't it? Plainly, the psalmist feels punished by God. And what's more, it doesn't sound like he deserves to be punished. There's no glaring sin, no repentance in this psalm. There is only suffering. 
And in verse 15, we read, He's been afflicted and close to death from his youth on up. He's been suffering like this since he was a little boy. What could a boy do to deserve this kind of suffering? It reminds me of a friend I had when I was young. She had brittle bone disease. By the time she was 15, she had broken every bone in her body multiple times. She died young, and she was afflicted and close to death from her youth on up. What did she do to deserve such suffering? What was she being punished for? What was the psalmist being punished for? No, 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 no. We do not like these questions. So awkward. So hard to ask. We don't like to acknowledge that life feels like punishment for many. But for many, it does. Trust me, many of our own people have suffered and are suffering still. Right now, this week, text after text after text. We have elderly who suffer from all kinds of ailments. All kinds of ailments. They wake every morning knowing that what William Butler Yeats said is true. This is no country for old men. We have people with poor health, an ailment that modern medicine has yet to cure, by the way. The rest of us have learned to live with COVID, but for some, COVID is still a death sentence. COVID still carries a death threat for many of our people. Some can't tell you the last time they were healthy. The last time they didn't feel like a burden to God and their loved ones. Some can't tell you the last time they knew peace in their body and in their soul. Speaking of peace, we have those that are racked by anxiety. Those who live in a constant state of fear of an unnamed malice that lurks around every corner. And when that unspoken fear overwhelms them and their soul retreats, they fall into despair, depression, only to find their worst fears renewed. And so they slide further and further down the spiral. And through it all, they find themselves utterly alone. Psalm 88 gives voice to those who find themselves living in the dark. And it gives believers the words that they need to pray and share and feel with God. And it gives them permission to feel and pray this way. Someday, you'll feel this way too. Everybody hurts, sometimes. Someday, you'll be an ardent believer that struggles to get up in the morning, wondering, how many days, weeks, months, years do I have left? Am I being punished? What am I being punished for anyways? In a world full of pain and suffering, it's easy to feel punished as if we've rebelled against God and we're reaping the whirlwind. The psalmist knew this better than most because of his heritage, because he's a son of Korah. Do you remember Korah? Do you know the story of Korah's rebellion? Well, I do need to tell it because I don't think that we can understand Psalm 88 without it. 
So here it comes. Korah's rebellion is found in Numbers 16. A man had just broken the Sabbath, and God had commanded that that man be stoned. And so Moses saw it done. Afterwards, three rebels approached Moses and Aaron, and their names were Korah, Dathan, and On. These three accused Moses and Aaron of arrogance, of lording over the people as prophet and priest. They argued that everyone in Israel was holy because the Lord dwelled among them all. Why then would Moses and Aaron dare to lift themselves up over the people? Why would they do that? How can they do that? Needless to say, Moses, the man of God, was enraged. He commanded the rebels to offer incense with Aaron. And they would wait and see who the Lord would choose and make holy. And so it was done. Korah and his rebellion offered incense in spite of Aaron. And the Lord appeared before the nation. And do you know what he said? He told Moses to have everyone step back from the rebels. Give them a wide berth. And Moses said, You'll know the Lord has called me if God does something new. You'll know the Lord has called me if the ground opens up and swallows the rebels and all that belongs to them. If they go down into Sheol alive then you'll know that they're despised by the Lord. And as Moses spoke these words, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed Korah and all his rebels with all their households. So the rebels went down to Sheol alive, and the earth covered them over, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Now that's a story you won't soon forget. So vivid and scary that it made innocent bystanders flee in fear as it was unfolding in their own day. If you saw this on the TV and you were a little kid, you'd probably run in the other room. But did you notice the imagery? The ground opens up and swallows the rebels. The ground split open, it split apart, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them. They go down alive into Sheol. And the earth closes over them, and they perish from the midst of the assembly. Sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? That's because Psalm 88 paints the same picture with these words. My life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You've caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so I cannot escape. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me. You've caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. What is the psalmist doing? Why would he recall Korah's punishment? Why would he recount such an awful scene and claim it as his own? Because the psalmist is a son of Korah. 
And Korah's rebellion haunts him because the psalmist's life has felt like an awful punishment, just like Korah's. For the psalmist, Korah's punishment reminds him of his own life, a life that feels like death, a life that feels cursed. Like so many of us, the psalmist feels the curse in his bones, not because of some glaring sin issue and not because of the sins of his father. For the psalmist's curse is much bigger, much older than he or Korah. We know this curse all too well. We know what it feels like to be children of a rebel. We know what it feels like to be children of Adam. We know what it feels like to live under a curse. For sin came into the world through Adam and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned in Adam. And so death has reigned from Adam to the psalmist, to Korah, and even to us. Death has reigned over us even though we've never tasted of the forbidden fruit. And why is this? Why were we cursed to live with death? Well, it's because of this reason. God refused to give his last and best creation over to the serpent. God refused to give Adam and Eve over to Satan. He refused to let them eat from the tree of life and live forever in rebellion. So he sent our parents into exile to live in a cursed land with cursed bodies and cursed families. But not forever. God sent a second Adam to defeat death to redeem the curse. Like the first Adam, the second is a rebel at heart too. Yes, Christ broke into this world as a rebel. He broke in to rebel not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And so he came into this world to live with us under the curse, to suffer under the curse just as the psalmist did, just as we do. Like the psalmist, Christ cried out day and night, for his soul was full of trouble, and his life drew near to Sheol. Perceived as a man lacking strength, he was pronounced dead by his enemies. He was set loose among the dead to be forgotten, cut off from the Lord. They put him in a pit, a region dark and deep, and God's wrath washed over him. His companions denied him, for he was a horror to behold. He was shut in, and he could not escape. Lifeless, he walked the path to Sheol, and his only companion was darkness. Christ lived Psalm 88 because we live Psalm 88. The psalmist asks, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is steadfast love declared in the grave? Are your wonders known in the darkness? In Christ's death, God has answered the psalmist's prayers in full. For in Christ's death, wonders are worked for the dead. In Christ's death, the departed do rise up to praise him. In Christ's death, God's steadfast love is declared in the grave. In Christ's death, wonders are preached in the darkness. In Christ's death, God has sent forth a truer and better Korah, 
For Korah rebelled against the ways of God and offered unholy incense to please himself. But Christ, he rebelled against the ways of the devil and offered a holy sacrifice to answer the prayers of his people. For precious are the lives and deaths of his saints. Korah died with two other rebels, and so did Christ. Christ died with one on his right and on his left. When Korah and Christ died, three went into the ground. But instead of going down to Sheol alive, Christ died that he would rise again, that he would reverse the curse, that the true rebellion would begin, that the many would be made righteous, that grace would abound, that grace would reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That thought brings back memories. After the surgeries on my foot, the only comfort I had was eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For months, I went through daily wound care. Every day, nurses would cut the dead skin out of my foot. They would fillet my soul raw every day. So the wound would be free to heal and grow together. But because I was a recovering addict, I could not have narcotics. And the pain was electric. And my only comfort was eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In spite of all the pain and suffering, and because of all the pain and suffering, he has rebelled against the darkness to set the captives free. The revolution has begun and is going down and is coming up. And he is coming for us. He's coming for us. He is coming for us to see his rebellion through to the end, to bring the dead out of their dark dungeons and into his light. The Spirit preaches His return to our souls, for we are His people, precious in His sight, children of God and fellow heirs with Him in eternity. For if we are baptized in Him, and if we suffer in Him, then we will be raised in Him. Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what does eternal life mean for us and our suffering? What word do I have for you as you find yourself suffering in the dark? Well, Jesus doesn't negate our suffering, and he doesn't minimize or deny it either. But he does redeem our suffering in him. What darkness means for evil, he means for good. And in light of eternity to come, he does relativize our suffering. Somehow, Hope helps us see in the dark. This is what Paul means when he says, The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to come, the glory that will be revealed in our resurrection. So, this is what I would leave you with. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to come. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to come. For such is the glory of his rebellion. To the glory of Christ and the life of the world, let's pray.
O Lord God, our salvation, let our cry come before you, for our souls are full of trouble and our lives draw near the pit. Strengthen the weak among us. Remember them in the name of your Son, for they feel cut off from your hand. They suffer terrors. They are helpless. Let us not shun them, though their suffering is awful to behold. They cannot escape, O Lord. Their eyes, they grow dim. Work wonders for the dead, we pray. For in Christ you have declared your steadfast love. In Him you have preached wonders in the darkness. And so we pray, be our companion in this present darkness till the light of your glory shines upon us at the end of all things. Amen.